0: The last few chapters have sort of been surrounded by a common theme. It has been, uh, he's covered a lot of ground in this book about all sorts of different parts of the Christian life. I was listening to a a, uh, podcast for pastors this week and they said, make sure for for young pastors or new pastors or whatever, within the first five years of the ministry, of, of your preaching ministry at a new church, make sure that by the end of those five years you cover a biblical view of sexuality, A biblical view of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. A biblical view of the conscience and liberty. And a biblical view of unity and Christ crucified, right? They sort of were saying a bunch of these things. And I thought, well, 1 Corinthians just solves all of that. You hit that and you'll cover the big things that really help a people stay together and help a people think practically about what it is to live after Christ in a community of people in a a, a pagan world that we're in. So it's been an amazingly practical book, very helpful to study through, um, at least for me. But what we're going to see now is from verse 8, if you remember back in chapter 8, he's been talking about the meat sacrifice to idols. If you've only come along the last couple of weeks, you would have heard us using that phrase without a whole lot of context. And to briefly say, Paul is addressing those Corinthians who, uh, because there's, there's sort of two parties in the Corinthian church, some of them think that since they've been saved by Christ, they can no longer engage even in touching or even physically going near something that has been dedicated to the demon gods of the pagans. They cannot eat meet, drink, wine, or buy anything that has belonged to or been dedicated to those temples, those idols, those demons. We're, we're Christians now. I'll get taken back into that world if I do that, so I need to stay, steer clear. And then there's the other side who know theologically true that uh, we've been saved from that, that those false gods don't actually have dominion, they don't actually have power over and above Jesus' It's not like two equal gods battling out for the souls of men. Jesus is the only potentate. He is the sovereign God. And therefore, they say, uh, some of them were saying, it doesn't matter what meat you eat because you just say a prayer of thanks over it and it takes it back for Jesus anyway. That's a pretty catch-all answer. And therefore, eat what you want, eat where you want. And they were even going so far as to go into the temples... And into the worship ceremonies of the pagans, remember we've said it was pretty hard to avoid them. All the major holidays, all the major restaurants were surrounding these pagan worship. Yet they were so free in their conscience, they would walk into those meals, sit down with pagans. While they worship their God, they'll sing, you know, they'll insert the word Jesus instead of Baal. They'll, they'll insert the word the word Christ instead of Aphrodites, Then they feel okay and they eat the amazing feast put before them. And Paul's been addressing them not simply by saying, these guys are right, these guys are wrong, here's what you should and shouldn't do. But on a grander scale, he's looking at the church as a whole and saying, I see that the problem here is that you're not even willing to bear with one another. One crew is going out and eating and you know that the, the other Christians are being tempted and you don't care. You're saying, dude, just whether you think it's idolatry or not, take a bite, it tastes great, we're free in Christ, And the crew over here are trying to legalistically put their rules for safety onto every other mature Christian, which they also should not do. So Paul has been addressing them as a family, saying you cannot make rules for others And those of you who are free and you recognize and know that your liberties are worth defending, Paul says in Galatians, let no one make extra rules for you. Defend your own liberty in Christ. However, he's been showing us that it's the the glory of the mature Christian. It's a sign of maturity to be willing to give up your rights, not because you have to, otherwise it wouldn't be giving up your right, but because you love to serve the body. So, In chapter 7, he showed us that he willingly gives up his right to be married because he can win more souls by being single. Then we saw him say in chapter 8 that he was willing to eat no meat if it kept his brother's conscience clean. Then he says in chapter 9 how he even gave up his right of being paid as a pastor just so that he could give a good example and win all the more souls. And it feels like in between chapter 8 and chapter 10, Paul got confused or maybe he took a break, woke up the next morning, started writing a new chapter and forgot he was talking about meat sacrifice to idols because there's, there's a weird topic change. But if you take chapter 8, 9 and 10 as a whole unit, it's all about giving up your rights, not just three different topics. And so, Paul was showing us, by him giving up his, his income, giving up the, the taking of a wage from a church, what he was showing was that, by example, Christians can give up their rights in order to serve the mission and the, the local church. So, as Christians, I hope you know now, as we've been talking even in the Q&As after the service, and I hear people talking and some great questions are asked in conversations, yes, the Christian has an almost a. Offensively freed conscience. In other words, if, if you were living consistently, always at the very extremity of what you're allowed to do in Jesus, you better believe that a lot of other Christians would be very uncomfortable. That's how free we are. There's no fabric, tattoo, substance, food. There's nothing really that is outside of our own realm of enjoyment, only as long as it doesn't lead us to other sins. So, of course, sobriety is a question and worship is going to be a question in chapter 10. But ultimately, I want you to know you're probably freer to do more as a Christian than you yourself let yourself do. But don't hear me saying, just start running towards the edge and once you hit the ground after falling, you'll figure it out where the the boundary line is. I'm not saying that. In fact, that is the whole point of chapter 10. As a Christian, if you take your liberty in Christ and eat what you want, wear what you want, sing what you want, go where you want, go to the parties and the festivals you want to go to, you can, if you use the utmost limits of your liberties, you can, number one, harm the conscience of your fellow believers and cause them to sin. That was chapter 8. Number two, you can limit how useful you are in the mission because unbelievers are seeing a bad witness and are not reached. And number three... Tonight we're going to see that if you use your liberties and be as free as you want to and and use them to the edge you can actually get yourself your own soul into danger of falling over the edge. For those who love to stand so close to the edge, stick their heels down and say I'm free to do this, no more of this talk of rules and care and all of that holiness of I'm allowed to, I'll do it even though it takes me to the edge. Though Paul says, Flee passions, flee temptation, I'm going to be as close as I can to it, you're going to fall. And so tonight, we can take uh, verse 13 as a real thematic, uh, sorry, verse 12 as a real thematic verse. Look at that. It says, with all of that introduction, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. I'm sure you can list 5, 10, 20, famous Christians who've been living out a ministry and and either you find out later or it comes out in the middle of their ministry some giant sin that they've allowed themselves to get broiled up into. And you've seen, of course, the carnage of Christ's name that is blasphemed on the news and in the uh, newspapers and in conversations at work and all the, you know, this so-called Christian, do you hear what he was actually doing or do you hear what she had done with her money and so on and so it goes. Paul is saying that when we see that happen to people, or maybe it's just a friend of yours in the the church who allowed themselves to get wrapped up in sin and is is dreadfully uh, uh, repentant and remorseful and embarrassed. Paul says, look at them and do never think yourself above that. Don't take your liberty and your, your, your confidence as something uh, that, you, that you just have as a state of permanence. He says rather, verse 12, take heed, be careful, look at yourself and assess yourself in case you likewise fall into those sins. So I'm going to go back up to chapter 10, verse 1. I'm going to read the whole lot and then we'll start breaking it apart. It's quite an interesting chapter. Verse 1. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. He's talking here of the Jews. They all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? He's speaking now of communion. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That, that food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? May God bless the reading of his fearful, authoritative, beautiful, and precious word to us this evening. I want you to go back to chapter 10, verse 1, as we see in the first five verses a very severe warning. This is not really the, the big welcome to church evangelistic text that you put up on pamphlets and, and hand out to people. These first five verses of this terrible and horrible uh, uh, summary of the Israelites in the desert, as, he, as Paul summarizes them, he really paints a bleak picture let's read what he says again and the point here is that there is a grand warning that not everybody and i need you to hear this personally individually not everybody who partakes in spiritual and religious experiences even true ones are safe from falling into idolatrous temptation paul's warning is like this. He's saying, applying it to them in the context of what he finished with saying with last week. You remember in chapter 9, verse 27, he said, in order to be effective on the ministry, so that he doesn't lose all of his fruit in the mission and get put down by the Lord, not losing his salvation, but losing his fruitfulness on the mission, he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified, not from salvation which is in Christ, but from his rewards which are dependent on our works. And he says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. I want you to apply that to yourself as well, that you should protect yourself, discipline yourself so that you are not disqualified from a great reward in the Lord. And he reminds them that our fathers were all under the cloud. So here's some, some funny language. I'll, I'll explain it quickly. He says, all of them were under the cloud. That was the miracle of God's spirit among the people in, uh, coming out of Egypt and wandering the desert. The cloud led them by day and a miraculous fire from heaven led them by night. It's hard to think of people seeing that day in, day out, would be able to in any way walk outside of the commandments of the Lord. And as soon as we get thinking that way, those dumb Israelites, didn't they think? Didn't they realize after seeing all that they saw? How did they still stop? Take heed, lest you fall likewise. We need to look back at them and Paul is showing us instead of thinking how dumb they are, rather think that's a picture of me if I am not careful. So look, he says that they were all under the cloud And they all passed through the sea. Okay, so we're painting a picture here. The the group of people who saw the miraculous leading by the Spirit, who saw the miraculous opening of the Red Sea and passed through in this amazing salvation exodus experience that would become the most significant historical event in Israel. The exodus Salvation from slavery. Okay, that that group of people, this amazing group, these guys must be the obedient bunch. And they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This is Paul using New Testament, Christianese language, to sort of look back on the Israelites and say they didn't get baptized, not what they did. However, we can look back and sort of see an image of, of, of baptism just as in baptism we identify ourselves with the leadership and headship of Jesus, he's saying when they followed Jesus, I mean Moses, sorry, when they followed Moses through the Red Sea, when they followed Moses through the cloud, as if that was a Presbyterian version of baptism, the sprinkling on top of them, as they did that, okay, as they did that, they were following and covenanting themselves to the leadership and headship of Moses. But there's more. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they ate the same spiritual food. So let's add to what they experienced. They were walking around in the desert, hungry, without the ability to throw down crops and wait for a harvest. They were walking around, and God sent miraculous provisions for them glittering dust from heaven that was like manna, that that was called manna, and you would take it and beat it into a flour and use it for bread, the bread from heaven that gave them life. And also at one point, God sent them a huge flock of birds, miraculously. They could just reach out, grab, cook up, and Kentucky fry. So that God was providing for them spiritually and miraculously. They drank the spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink. And he explains it here. For they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. There is so much history of Israel that we could jump into there from what happened in the wilderness. But what what God had done is is in their thirst and in their need, God had told Moses to go and uh, uh, apply his stick to the rock and speak to the rock. and, And the rock would pour out water completely miraculously. And from that gushing, the people would drink. So Paul is calling that the spiritual drink. Not because there was anything different in there other than H2O, but it was provided miraculously and it was given by the Spirit. And then there's an event at the end of the wilderness wandering where Moses, wanting to get water again, walks up and strikes that rock twice. Apparently it doesn't work the second time. He takes a second out-of-the-park swing and God, for that one says that Moses can never enter the promised land. He dies not seeing what was promised. And we say, why was that such a big deal? He'd done it before. He just wanted some more water. And here is Paul telling us that rock, which was the life-giving water gift from heaven, represented Christ. You can't go whacking it with a stick. And so for that, it would take 1,500 years before the explanation comes But that rock was symbolic of Christ so it was with them at the beginning of their wilderness wandering it was with them at the end and Paul is using all of this as building this amazing experience I wonder if you could tell your testimony tonight how many miracles have you seen Or how many answers to prayer have you seen God bring about in your life on your way to salvation? Or how amazing could your story be if you told everybody what you saw God do and how God changed your life and brought you up out of that slavery to sin? And how he changed your habits and your affections and your family and your home life and everything was different. And and what else have you seen God do in ministry and in answer to prayer and in miraculous things, maybe on the mission field? I would love to hear every single one of those from every single one of us. It would be thrilling. And yet, Paul's warning is that the experiences you've experienced are not enough to keep you secure in obedience in and of themselves. In an understatement of understatements, he then says in verse 5, Nevertheless, or yet, even after all of that had happened to that generation, yet, with most of them, God was not pleased. That's an understatement. First of all, because by most of them, he means the million of them except for two. Only two people who came up out of Egypt walked into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb, the re- that's not even 98%. That's, that's, an enormous, that's 99.99 something percent of the nation. And then it says he was not pleased with. Another understatement. I think if your skeletons are in the desert because God sent fiery snakes or, or plagues or destroyed you in his wrath, not pleased with is a bit of an understatement. And so we're looking at this, this miracle-filled generation who saw so much. And Paul is saying... Yet, brothers and sisters, with them, with all but two of them, he killed them in the desert for their disobedience. And the point that Paul will make here is because they took the liberty that they thought they had and went about proudly and arrogantly, went far too close to the edge and were tempted into sin. So verse 1 to 5 shows us a grand warning not to do that ourselves not to ever look back on your experience and trust it to be enough to keep you secure in Christ I don't need to pray much I I don't find I need to be really in the word all that much you should see my pedigree you should see what God's done in my life what God has used me in ministry I'm sort of just floating along with the Lord I can drift along my way to heaven without much intentional prayer and discipline and beating my body into submission Paul of all people should be able to say that and he says no the, the, the way of the Christian life is discipline in the small and ordinary things of life. And if we fail to do that, we will find ourselves fallen. Now in the, in the even less desirable and pleasant section of the passage, look at verse 6. <clears throat> he says, the things that happened to them, happened to them. Okay, it really happened. It's not a myth, it's not a fable, it actually happened to them. It didn't happen to us but it's written in Scripture for us. God did it to them, but he wrote it down for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. I hope, Christian, that you're getting a sense that the idolatry and the sin that Paul's going to talk about tonight is post-salvation idolatry, which means you cannot just uh, click off and go, yeah, this is for the non-Christians, those who worship other gods. This is not for me. I'm in Christ. Paul is tonight talking to us about post-salvation idols. Idols that we are tempted to lean into and give our affections to and our life to after the fact that we've been saved through the exodus, through the water, through the cloud, through the miraculous eating and drinking of communion and baptism. Through all of that, we are still tempted to idols. And in a fearful display of what happened to them, Paul goes and explains to us. Look at verse Seven. Do not be idolaters, as in somebody who joins themselves in worship to an idol, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a, just a quote from the Old Testament. When they, when they engaged in idol worship in the wilderness... And he's going to say in verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality. So the first thing that Christians are tempted to do, and this is thematic and symbolic of the rest, is to join ourselves to idols. Now that, that we'll get into specifics later. Really, there's a, there's a broad sense in which anything we give our life and heart to, other than God, becomes an idol for us. But tonight he's also specifically talking about pagan worship. So number one, Christians, maybe not white Western Christians who who grew up in the West anyway and never got taught uh, uh, pagan or ancestral worship. But uh, there are, and the more the, the word of God goes out, the more people from pagan and animistic, spiritualistic backgrounds come to faith, and this needs to be spoken about. Do not worship idols, number one. The second thing that Christians are tempted to do, even after salvation, is sexual immorality. And so he says, the second thing that we can see an example for in Israel, do not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23, or another version of the story says, I think somebody's rounding down, somebody's rounding up, 24,000 fell in a single day. The third thing is that we are likely to put Christ to the test. We are likely to challenge Jesus' authority in our life. And they, when they did that in the desert, were destroyed by serpents. I'm going to explain each of these events. Nor, Christians, hear this. The third thing on his list, sorry, the the fourth thing on his list of top Christian sins that get you killed is complaining, grumbling, how many Christians need to hear this? Just a, a divine shut up with grace and mercy and peace in our Lord Jesus Christ. But 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 by grumbling is what they did against the Lord and He and they were destroyed by the destroyer. It's a pastor's favorite verse right there. Lord, give me first, just take that, Mr. Smith, who keeps on grumbling. Send a serpent, Lord, do something. He sits in the same place every week. One lightning strike, Lord. Get a little Old Testament. And, and, and Paul's showing us that we shouldn't think God used to discipline people in real time, but now it's the age of grace and we can do what we want, and Lord, the Lord is a lot more in his place. He, he lets us get away with a great deal more. Not so. Paul is giving to us warnings and exhortations. He says in verse 11 again, these things happened to them as an example, but were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That first part that he talks about of idolatry, let's go through the events. He says, do not be idolaters. Now, what is so interesting about the idol uh, example that he uses is that the, the, the Israelites did not worship some other God. That was the first commandment. Have no other God before me. And they didn't. When Moses went up to the mountain to get the commandments of the Lord, they did not turn to another God and start worshipping Baal or somebody else. Instead, they said to Aaron, Here's some gold. Make us a calf that we can worship Yahweh, who brought us up out of Egypt. They were breaking the second commandment which was make no images in order to worship me through, it will always be insultingly low compared to God. He's not to be worshipped through images. They were breaking that. And they sat down at the foot of that golden calf that Aaron's excuse was. Do you remember that story? Like, we were always good at coming up with excuses. He, he's, when Moses comes down in a... Fury, how his brother Aaron the high priest meant to work meant to lead the people to worship God, has led the people to worship a calf. And Aaron says, I don't know what you're complaining about. This was the Lord's doing. They gave me their gold, they threatened me. I just threw it all in the fire. That's what a good high priest would do. No, I won't do it. Threw it in the fire and a cow popped out. I can't be blamed for this. Moses doesn't believe it. Nor should he and nor would he. And people still come up with excuses just as smart as that. <clears throat> But here's Aaron, that was his excuse, and in that day, the holy ones of the Lord who had not bowed down went through and slaughtered their brothers and sisters. 3,000 people at least perished in that day by the hand of God's own people in response to idolatry. Then the next example that he uses is sexual immorality, and he says that 23,000 fell in that day. And that's the day that that they had come up to the edge of the promised land, and they're getting ready to to try and enter it and fight some battles, and they're outside of Moab. We've talked about this story before, and they get Moab, the the king of the nation, that they don't want Israel to come in and pummel them. They don't want Israel to take their land, so they get a, a prophet and say, come and curse the people of Israel so they can't attack us, and he can't because the Lord God protects Israel, and here's this man, he just goes over and over, I can't curse them they're protected I can't curse them they're protected and he walks away with one final piece of advice however they can destroy themselves if only you send your scantily dressed daughters down to the edge in the borderline those men will get themselves killed by having sex with your daughters worshiping your gods and doing whatever it takes for a bit of pleasure in the desert and that's what they did they sent down their ladies. They tempted the men. The men worshipped on a large scale Baal, the false god, a demon pagan god. And God in that day slaughtered twenty-three to 24,000 of them in one day. Christians, we must not meddle and mess with sexual immorality in all the, the rules, you know, and it's hard but talking culturally. Like, the, the, the New Testament does not give us a black and white manual for every situation relationally that you're going to find yourself in. Am I allowed to take it to the movies? Are we allowed to go on a date? Are we allowed to stay out past 10? Am I allowed to drive her home? Am I allowed to hang out with members of the opposite sex? Am I allowed to, to have other, other members of the opposite sex on social media? Am I allowed to watch this movie and that movie? And Am I allowed to listen to this music? And, and what length do we need our dresses or shorts or pants to be? And how tight do belts need to be? And all of this, we want all the rules. God just give us a rule book. And he doesn't. He gives us principles flee from sexual immorality. And therefore, in that grey area, we make our own conscience decisions and say the most foolish things that always come before a downfall, yeah, no, I know, I, I'm just not really tempted by that sort of thing. No, I know others are, but you know, me and her or, or, or him and me, we're not really tempted in that way, you know what I mean? And, and these are proudly spoken words always moments before the fall. And so this is an example that Paul is using. Do not so use your Christian New Testament liberty to to, to do what maybe others don't want to do, but you're pretty sure you're allowed to technically do this on a date, you know, in terms of going somewhere, taking her somewhere, buying a certain jewelry, whatever. And you go, this is all good. But in going that close, you know you are taking yourself to temptation. Maybe even to married men and women. You know, there's nothing in the Bible that says don't talk about your weekend with the member of the opposite sex at work. Jeez, I'm just talking to him. It's just a few laughs. He just likes the sound of my voice. And oh, would you look at that, an emotional affair. We need to not walk in the pride of our liberties to such a degree that it would take us to the edge of temptation. And Paul uses this severe example because the desire within us to sin is always so strong. 23,000 massacred bodies in the red blood dirt because of sexual immorality. It was written for our instruction. Or, Or the other example, when they grumbled against Moses... And they started speaking against him and, and didn't like his planning or his leadership they complained against him and God sent to them in the desert a a cloud a storm of fiery serpents God just it says that they, it they they could see the darkness on the horizon as it approached them and these serpents these snakes would just go through the camp bite anybody and anyone who was bit bitten would die unless they looked up to the, the bronze serpent that, that Moses was told to make and hold up in the middle of the camp. And anybody that looked to that lifted up serpent would be saved from their sinful judgment. And yet in that day, many perished because they grumbled against the leadership of God's chosen one, Moses. A terrible, terrible scene. And then Elsewise, they did the same thing. In this this way, they were putting Christ to the test, Paul says. They, They come up to Moses and in a similar fashion, they say, we've got a guy, don't worry, your leadership sucks. You're following God, he's not listening to us. We've got somebody who can be prince. We've got somebody who can be priest. Sit on down. And Moses, with the divine wisdom, says, let's meet tomorrow morning and we'll see who God picks. And in the next day... As Moses prayed, the people lined up who were against him, who were putting God to the test, and the ground opened up, swallowed them, and the blood splattered at it as it shut closed again. It says the earth swallowed them. When we oppose God, there is nothing outside of his reach to discipline us. We cannot run to Joppa like Jonah. We cannot get on a ship and, and run to the edges of the world and escape his spirit even there, Psalm 39 says. He is there. And he loves us far too much. And he loves his own holiness far too much to let his children and his reputation go being destroyed in the world. So again here, that we are not looking at individual salvation here. We've already said back in chapter 14. Five and six and whatnot that, that those who live in patterns of those ways are not those in, inheriting the, the, the kingdom of God but tonight Paul is saying that each one of us is likely to fall into grumbling and complaining and putting God to the test or sexual immorality or even idolatry if we do not each of us take heed lest I fall I am not above that temptation look to verse 12 Now we see the encouragement begin and the encouragement comes in this manner. Paul is saying in verse 12 and 13, he's saying, you are not all that unique. He says in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. How many people want to come up with the excuse like Aaron? Man, I don't know what happened. You know how holy I am. But a demon came upon her and made her the most beautiful thing in the world and I couldn't help it. I was somehow thrown into a sexual frenzy. Or, you know how self-controlled I am and yet here I was just gossiping and hating about the the leadership or the ways that God is working and what God hasn't blessed me with. I guess I put him to the test but no one's experienced temptation like I have. And here Paul would simply remind us, no, you and every other flesh and bone God, indwelt Christian, on the earth, is tempted by the exact same temptations as you. We cannot come up with excuses like supernatural, even if there is supernatural things at play, we can never say the excuse is the height of temptation, greater than anyone's ever experienced before. No, it's the same as everyone experiences daily. The simple question is, do you believe the second part of the verse? God is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear but in every moment when when aaron was standing before the millions and they're giving him his gold saying give us an idol he had a way out of temptation when the men were standing there in their lines and the moabite girls were coming down and dancing for them they had a way out of temptation When when the Israelites were starving and filled in their shoes with sand and they were sick of the bread they were eating, they had a way out of temptation to grumble. When the people were, were in a mob mentality saying, let's overthrow Moses, each individual person had a way out of that temptation. And the answer was, the clue was, that they should have trusted that God is faithful. He keeps his promises. This is a moment of testing. What's very interesting is in the scriptures, the word for testing and temptation are the same word. They're just uh, translated according to context. You see, the, the devil will tempt you. He will seek to pull you away. Your own flesh will tempt you away from the Lord. And at the very same moment, God is testing you. Testing you. I've given you the way out there of course is the desire to sin commit idolatry sexual immorality grumbling and testing of the lord but the decision friends is yours so here is paul's language in in simplified terms you're not all that unique it's the same temptation we all face and you're not all that unique you don't have a temptation that is in this one instance above the lord he's above this one no matter how you're being tempted You have the spirit, you have a faithful father, and you have a high priest in heaven, Jesus Christ, who went through the temptations just like you, without sin, and he's now praying for you. Don't ever let yourself get distressed and depressed by thinking, this is the worst temptation anyone's ever faced, or by thinking, in this one instance, I'm the only person to have ever been left by a faithless God, he hasn't given me a way out. We have God's promises, he has he will strengthen us. The decision is ours. So take heed, lest we' likewise fall and find ourselves ruining the reputation of Christ, losing fruitfulness in the mission if we had only stayed faithful. We'll look also to verse 14 through to 22. And this is where we see in this last section that Paul is saying, "There is spiritual realities in worship that are at play whether you realize them or not. Don't think of, and this is, this is the broader term of idolatry, don't think that idolatry is only, or demonic worship is only, and demonic involvement is only when you explicitly call down the, the chakras or the chants, or you, you open up that pagan book and you start engaging intentionally and willingly in worship of demons. Now, Paul will say throughout the New Testament, That certain things people are doing through their covetousness, through their sexual immorality, through their giving in to social pressures and and give in and bend the knee to statism. It's all wrapped up in idolatry. So Let's read verse 14 to 22 and I'll recap and apply. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You see how this relates to the the meal of the meats that are sacrificed to idols and and the worship ceremonies. Flee from it. Don't flaunt your rights because, number one, you'll get in the way of others coming to Christ. Number two, you'll get in the way of your brothers having a clean conscience. But tonight's point is that you are not as strong as you think you are. You are strong when you are near to Christ, reliant on him and fleeing from idolatry. You are weakest against idolatry and every form of temptation when you are letting yourself get near to it. So, let's keep on reading like I said I was going to. Flee from idolatry. I speak to you as sensible people. You're adults. Think about it, he's saying. Judge for yourselves what I say. Think about this. The cup of blessing that we bless, which is what the, the cup in communion was called, the cup of blessing that we pray over, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And what he's saying here is, we're not just taking snacks and remembering Jesus. There is actually a spiritual reality, and maybe, maybe you didn't know this, but in communion, which is why the next chapter in 11 is going to tell us that God was killing some of the Corinthians because they were doing this and handling this spiritual matter in an unworthy way. The sacraments of the Lord in baptism and the Lord's Supper have powerful spiritual realities going on behind them. They're not just a memorial meal. They are a spiritual act in which when we take it to ourselves, either in baptism once at the beginning or in communion periodically through our Christian life, we're engaging ourselves with the covenant of God. We're we're throwing ourselves onto his mercy, repenting of sin and identifying with the resurrection of Christ. There is a spiritual bond that is occurring. And so he says, therefore, though we're all many bodies, we're actually one body in the body of Christ. That's what communion is showing us. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel are not all those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. He's using Old Testament language here saying, you bring your, your sacrifice. That guy does the burning. The priest does the burning for you. And yet you take a bit home to eat showing that that you and the sacrificer and the god receiving it you're all unified here by eating of the same substance so he's really just building the case that spiritual acts of worship have spiritual realities behind them and he says what do i imply then so is the application from this that paul's going to say and when you go and worship an idol or, or when you go and eat the meat that has been sacrificed to an idol or when you sit down at the festival gathering of Aphrodite or, or, or anyone else, when you go and do that, am I saying that you are being stripped away from Christ and made one in the body of the, of the pagan? He says, no. In the next verse, he says, no, the, 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 the gods are nothing. They don't have the power to pull you out of Christ. They don't have that sovereignty. They don't have that covenantal obligation that can override your covenantal obligation in Christ. And yet, he's showing that the act of pagan worship or a pagan festival, sitting down while they're singing their songs, that's not a non event. Just because our God is the real God and you're not genuinely worshiping the demon, doesn't mean you're not opening yourself up to some danger doesn't mean that as the demon is standing there over you, as, as the, the Christian comes into the pagan temple because they've got the best meat and there they sit under the shrine and they say, I'll just say Jesus' words during the songs, it's all okay. Or, or the, the Christian goes into the mosque and sings along to escape persecution but says Jesus under their breath. When that is happening, the demons that are resident in that temple mock the Lord God, as they did in the day of Baal in the Old Testament. You need to realize there is a spiritual reality here that they mock the Lord, saying, Look at your people coming to me, coming bending the knee to my worship and my festival. And Paul is saying, even though it is a it's not an absolute impossibility, it's a logical inconsistency here when he says in verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and of the table of demons. And in verse 21, he said, I do not want you to be participants with demons. And again, can I be honest and say, you're probably not struggling with the temptation day to day to go on down to the the Mormon or Buddhist temples in our area because they've got a great potluck and sing their songs. Probably not the temptation you're facing. And yet, those more formalized version of demon worship are just re- are examples for us for what idolatry we are tempted towards. Let me submit this to you, that an idol is anything that you put in the place of God, Yahweh, our covenant God, who brought us up out of the slavery to sin. Anytime you put something in his place right next to him, Because he's worthy, and so is money. And he's worthy, and so is sex. And he's worthy of all of my time and worship, equal to my financial situation, or equal to my job, or equal to my reputation, or equal to my family, or my children, or whatever it is. We take good things and turn them into terrible things when we put them on an altar. They took good jewelry, tremendous gold, blessings from the Lord and turned it into something they would have to eat and be sacrificed for worshipping. And so we do that. So what things in your life have you put into an equal place with the Lord or in place of the Lord? And, and if that's a difficult thing to sort of answer and go, well, that's still quite abstract, then the application of what Paul is saying tonight clarifies it a great deal more. Anything that you are willing to risk sinning for anything that you're going to hold on your liberties to do, even though it risks you falling into sin, that thing you're chasing is for you in the place of God. God says, flee idolatry, flee sexual immorality, flee your grumbling and you're you're putting the Lord to the test by not being satisfied with his portion that he's given to you. And any time you hear, flee sexual immorality and you say, yeah, generally good advice, but it's worth taking the risk because I love this movie series. Or it's worth taking the risk because she needs to know that I love her. Or it's worth taking the risk because I will not sacrifice my reputation in front of my friends and saying, no, I won't see that movie. Or when he says, do not grumble, and we say, yes, true, but... In order to to hide or flee from grumbling, I'm going to lose some friends here, I'm going to have to rebuke some people who I love and want to impress. Anything we're willing to get close and risk ourselves falling into sin for that thing we're doing it to pursue has become an idol. And in Paul's words tonight, you need to realize that behind those realities are demonic powers, I don't, I don't want to sound too, too crazy and you know, left-wing spiritualist tonight, but I'm telling you that in Scripture the, and, and in history, they didn't make idols out of, out of pigs for no reason, out of, out of uh, the, the, the gods over their fields for no reason. They weren't just dumber than us. They had things they desired, plentifulness in the harvest, plentifulness in, in making children and being fertile, getting plenty of money in the marketplace, safety at sea. They just made gods out of all the things they loved and sacrificed everything they could to them. And behind those things were demonic powers and temptations. And so today we need to realize if if money is that one thing that, that is keeping you close to temptation despite the Lord's commandment to flee from temptation, money is for you an idol. If if, if reputation or your, your uh, uh, career or, or the pursuit of a certain uh, uh, wealth bracket or house or relationship or whatever else, if we take something and are willing to put ourselves in the realm of temptation for that thing, it is an idol, God despises it, and today we must either kill it or it will be ground down to a fine powder in front of us mixed with water. We will have to eat it and our bodies will be strewn in the desert. Think of the potential that you can achieve by the power of the Spirit for the mission of God. Maybe you'll have a call on your life for missions or for being a soul-winning evangelist or, or the father of multiple pastors and pastor's wives or whatever it is. Or, or you're going to be somebody who wins souls in the workplace or you're going to be someone who leads worship for the thousands or whatever it is. I don't know. I can't pretend to imagine the potential God could do with each one of us. But it will be Falling flat, it will not be achieved for God. That whole potential of your calling will be wasted if you dance close to the line of temptation and give yourself over to that idolatry. The Lord will not be mocked. Can I end on this this challenging question from Paul? Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? After hearing all of that, you want to go on that? We're going to go start poking the throne of the Lord. Are we stronger than he? Can you bow your heads as we close out tonight in prayer? And before we pray, I want each one of us with bowed heads to realize the reality that we are reminded of here is that God is God. We are sinners. Even with all the blessings in the world, we will find ourselves walking away from the Lord. The strength that is needed to obey the strength that is needed to remain covenantally faithful does not come from us but comes from God and his Holy Spirit given to us by the blood of Jesus who died for your sin sexual immorality idolatry grumbling and putting the Lord to the test through impatience whatever sin any one of us has whether we we think ourselves Christians and we are not or whether we are we we know we're not Christians or whether we are tonight here covenantally bound to Jesus Christ by faith, you need to know your sins are forgiven by one thing and one thing alone, the blood of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. Father God, we do not want to be a church or a people or individuals who despite all of the blessing you give to us and all of the teaching you provide for us through your word and all of the rescuing that you've done in the past We do not want to be those who that is wasted on, who are found, in fact, to be meddling in sexual immorality or idolatry or complaining or being impatient with you. Lord, we want to be those who who see a good return on the investment you put in our lives. And I pray that that would begin tonight, Lord, with assurance in our hearts, with confidence, not in ourselves, but in Jesus, who like that bronze serpent of the desert was was lifted up to die and anybody that looks to it is saved and forgiven of their sin. I pray, Lord, that you would make us joyful and trusting in Jesus and receiving these solemn warnings from the pen of Paul and by the power of your spirit that we would severely test ourselves where in our life we have tolerated idolatry. May you, God, be blessed and glorified forever and ever through this people and your church all over the world. And we trust that this will be so because we pray in the name of your victorious lion son named Jesus slain for us. And everybody said, amen, amen.